Let's open our Bibles, please. Uh, I said we'd be in Proverbs this week, but I'm actually going to do like I did last week and start somewhere else and make my way there. But I'll try to make my way there faster than I did last week, which was basically right before the end of the service. I'd like to start in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And then I'm going to jump over to 1 John for a bit. And then we'll look up some verses in Proverbs. This has actually been a really wonderful study for me. Not just going over the verses in Proverbs that I looked at some years ago and wrote about, but some of the other thinking that it's led me to and thinking through some other familiar passages of Scripture that maybe just in my own devotional life I haven't visited in some time. Um, But in Matthew chapter 7, there are these really amazing, deeply probing, thought-provoking words of Jesus near the end of the Sermon on the Mount as He's building towards His conclusion that start in verse 21. And really, really go all the way to the end of the chapter, but I just want to think about verses 21, 22, and 23 because they so clearly speak about this issue of righteousness and the practice of it. Let's pray together, okay? And, uh, and then after we pray, we'll go into the Word. Dear Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You very much that we can be gathered together here today. And Lord, I know these words are serious ones, as everything in the Bible is. But Lord, these are very serious words because they really speak to an examining of ourselves and our ways. It really speaks, Lord, to examining what we really believe, where our faith really is, and how it then manifests itself in how we live. And Lord, my prayer is that we would see these things, that we would be encouraged that we would be corrected and challenged if we need to be, but that we would actually be encouraged and built up and once again reminded of the kind of life that you want us to live now that you have brought us to faith in your holy name. We know we are saved by faith. We know we are given the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we know that we are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. And so I pray we would see these things in your word today. Thank you for the good singing and encouragement we've already had. And now I pray, Lord God, that you, Lord God, would help us. Help us to focus. Help us to listen to these things that are so important. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus says, towards the end of His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father in heaven. Many will say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and done many wonders in Your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Right off the bat, let me point out that lawlessness is the virtual antithesis of righteousness. Righteousness is doing what's right. Lawlessness is walking as if there is no standard at all for what is right. Lawlessness. It's, it's, it's sin, really. Because to keep the law is to practice righteousness, right? And to sin, then, is to transgress the law. Now, it's an interesting situation because our salvation has nothing to do with practicing anything. Our salvation has everything to do with Christ and how He practiced righteousness in His life. Jed, before he sang today, quoted from 2 Corinthians. Boy, what I would have to say is one of the most concise statements on the subject in, that's ever been written. And of course, you would find that in the Bible, wouldn't you? That he who knew no sin, that's an important point, that Christ was sinless, right? Because the next part, became sin for us, could not happen unless he had known no sin. So Christ, who is the one who walked perfectly in his life, was qualified to become sin because if he had sinned, there would be no sin to become. He would already be a sinner. You understand? But because Christ was perfect, he was qualified as a spotless lamb to become sin for us that we, what, through faith in him, we become the righteousness of God, that verse goes on to say. In him, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him is what it goes on to say. So that sums up the supernatural transaction that takes place when a person trusts Christ. We started the service by singing, only trust Him now. And when we come to faith in Christ, the amazing thing that happens that is probably imperceptible to the new believer and is just something that as you go through life you have to continue to trust Him for, is the fact that that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you. And so, my salvation depends upon Christ's righteousness. My salvation depends upon God's grace in that He gave me as a gift the righteousness of Christ which justifies me before God. And now I am saved. My sins are forgiven. I have been credited with a righteous life before God. That's some of what's at the heart of the Gospel. Then you, you start to think about some of these passages of Scripture and you come to a statement where Jesus speaks of telling people who practice lawlessness, get out of here. I never knew you. And it can create a little bit of a, not a confusion, but, but something that needs to be carefully worked out and reconciled in your mind. Because we know clearly that we can't practice lawfulness to a point that would please God in that we would earn our place with Him. We know that we all fall. We know that we all stumble in many things. 
there are admonishments in Scripture that are written to Christians that say things like, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or, or confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? Familiar ground. Talked about that recently. And so there's acknowledgement in the Bible among the writings that are written to Christians that there is this issue of sin in our lives in an ongoing day-by-day basis that needs to be dealt with. And so when you look at the statement of Jesus that says he's going to at one point say to people, I never knew you. Get out of here, you who practice lawlessness. How do you understand what's going on there? I think the key, I've explained to you the word lawlessness. I think the key is to understand the word what? Practice. Practice. There's two things about the word practice that are very important to understand. And I'm going to look at another passage in the New Testament in a moment before we go to Proverbs that uses the word practice, the same word, in a very similar way. But the idea of practicing something has two key characteristics to it. Number one, you have a commitment to it. That's what, that's what the practice of something is. Someone who has a law practice is committed to studying and, and defending the law. Someone who has a medical practice is committed to studying medicine and science and then applying what he or she learns to the care for patients. It's a commitment, right? So the idea of practicing lawlessness is that I am committed in my life to just doing whatever I want, which is what lawlessness is, right? Law is a restraining factor on my life. Lawlessness is I'm just going to live and do whatever I want, irrespective of what others may think or, in this case, what God Himself has to say about how we ought to live. So there's that aspect in the practice of a, the commitment of a person. In other words... The practice of lawlessness is the person who just does not care about their own conduct. Now that makes a little more sense. I'll come to the second thing in a a little bit. But that helps you understand it a little better. Because Jesus starts the saying by saying what? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, it's not the saying. It's not the confessing that Jesus is Lord all by itself. You know, it's not just a simple decision that someone makes in their mind, whether it's manifested by praying a prayer or going to church or or being involved with religious activities as some of these people were that he's talking about here. There's more to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There, listen, before you read anything else, the following is true. There are people who call Jesus Lord. And there's something about the repetition of the word Lord too. It's not just not everyone who says to me, Lord. No, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. As if there's either a desperation to it or there's, there's a, a real emphasis on the outward appearance of wanting to look like someone who says Jesus is their Lord. Right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are people today and throughout the last 2,000 years of history who have, with their mouths, called Jesus Lord who are not going to enter His kingdom. That much is true just from the first statement. 
and it's immediately contrasted with the word but. But what? But he who what? He who... What's the next word? Does. Now just stop there for a minute. He who does. Do you see that doing, doing is important? Now, we've established already, not just today, but for at least the last 17 years and and, and certainly longer than that, we've established that our doing does nothing to justify ourselves, right? It's Christ's doing. So what do we see? I think what you see is this. There's another part in the Scripture where Jesus actually asks this question, and I want you to think very carefully about this. I've said this before. I will say it again, Lord willing, but I want you to think about it today. Jesus literally asked the following question as plainly as this. Why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? Do you realize that calling Jesus Lord Lord is a title that acknowledges sovereignty and rule and authority. Why do you call Jesus that and then with your lives strip it bare of its practiced meaning? That's what he's saying. Why do you call me this but then don't live consistently with what it means? Why do you call me sovereign, authoritative, powerful Lord, master, leader, ruler, king? Why do you call me such? But then don't live a life that's consistent with calling me that, which would be what? Doing the things that I say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, what? The will of my Father in heaven. What is the will of God? At one point they asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the will, this, these are the works of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So ground zero for doing the works of God is faith in the Gospel. That's where it all starts. There's no works you can do to justify yourself. You believe the Gospel. But it goes on from there. Elsewhere Jesus says things like, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Right? And he says, obey my commandments. And like right first on the list is that you love one another. And he says his commandments are not burdensome. We're going to go to 1 John in a minute here. But more on this passage. Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, what is the day that he's talking about? Some people would say maybe the end of time. Some people would say maybe when you die. But listen, there is a day that is coming when it will matter this forever there is a day when everyone will be before the lord i can't tell you when that day is going to be for you i don't know when that day is going to be for me but in that day when people are accounting for themselves before god many of them are going to say what look what we did we prophesied we preached in your name That's good. We cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. 
And what does Jesus say to them? I will declare to them, I never knew you. To people who call him Lord and to people who have preached, cast out demons and done miracles in his name. And then he specifies, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Never, past tense, knew you. Not I knew you, but you drifted away. No, I never knew you to begin with. You who what? Practice lawlessness. So here's what we can determine, I think, clearly from this. The person who calls Jesus Lord, the person who has come to believe the gospel and has faith in the gospel, if that faith is real and is authentic, there is a commitment to walk in righteousness. I'm not saying we're successful at it. I'm not saying, like, from the moment that you get saved, you never sin anymore. Again, there's admonishments in the New Testament to Christians who fall into sin. It happens. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. The truth isn't in us. That's why Christ died, because we're sinful. And when he died, he came to destroy the works of the devil, and yet we still find ourselves battling and struggling with the works of the devil, even in our own lives to lead us into sin, right? But it's the key is that word practice. The person who says, Lord, Lord, and it's from a real sincere heart. Yes, they preach in His name. Yes, they do other works in His name, whether miraculous as listed here or other kinds of works maybe that appear in the less miraculous realm of things but are still nevertheless works of uh, help, works of aid, works of love, works of encouragement, all sorts of other works, whatever it is that God has gifted us and given us the capacity and the resources and the ability to do, to minister and to serve in the church. Yes, all those things should be done. But all of that activity and all of the talking, Lord, 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 all of the outward expressions and all of the things that we do where the rubber really meets the road is when the person has truly come to faith in Christ, they have a commitment to throw off the old man and a commitment to put on the new man. We have no capacity to do that in our own strength, right? But that's the difference between, see, that's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian has been given the presence of God to forever seal and dwell in them. And it is why the New Testament commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then we have the capacity to match up with the commitment to practice righteousness. Not a righteousness that will ever come up to justifying ourselves. Not a righteousness that will ever be perfect. But a righteousness that is a, the practice of our lives. Listen, the course of the life of the redeemed, the course of the life of the regenerated, the course of the life of the one who's been born again, the course of the life of the has, 
had God come and make His home in us, radically changes in that moment that they believe and receive His Spirit. The Christian is someone who says, Lord, Lord, yes. The Christian is someone who preaches and casts out demons and performs miracles or whatever other works that we're called to do. Yes. But the Christian is also someone who makes a commitment to walk, listen, walk worthy. That is, walk as Christ walked. That's what the practice is. The practice is that commitment. And I said there were two keys to understanding the word practice. One is that element of I have set myself. I have consecrated myself. I have dedicated myself. That's a practice, right? If you needed a lawyer, and it was a lawyer that never cracked open a book of case law, or didn't even know what the Constitution was, didn't even know where the local courthouse was, never studied anything, but had a law license hanging on his wall, right? You wouldn't think that lawyer very good because there's no practice of anything. He'll still make mistakes. He'll lose cases every now and then. But if he's diligent and he's applied himself to his practice, then maybe you're willing to pay him and trust him. The same with your doctor in the practice of medicine. If your doctor never picks up a medical journal, right? If your doctor never visits patients in the hospital, if your doctor never stays on top of the latest in medicine and the latest in technology, he has a medical degree, a certificate hanging on his law. He has the letters MD after his name. But he's not really practicing medicine, is he? And so what right really does he have to call? The same is true of the Christian. I call Jesus Lord. I go to church. I get involved in the life of the church. But I have no commitment to walk as Jesus walked. How can I call Him Lord? How can I say He's sovereign and authoritative and powerful? Listen, sovereignty and authority and power don't just mean that I go passively through life. And God just does everything and how I live doesn't matter. Sovereignty does not demand fatalism. Sovereignty demands what? Obedience. A commitment to obey. Sovereignty demands that the one who is lorded over be committed to righteousness. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. What's the practice of your life? What are Listen, you call yourself a Christian, praise the Lord. What is the practice of your life? I don't just mean your involvement in church activities. I don't just mean your religiosity. I don't just mean your spiritual. What is the practice of your life? Do you seek Him? Have you set your mind to grow close to Him? Have you set your mind to learn His Word that you may be a doer of it and not just a hearer? Do you pray? Do you press in close? Do you fellowship with other Christians who are like-minded and like-ambitioned that you might encourage one another? 
Do you strengthen the weak and hold up the arms of the lowly that they may come alongside as well? What is the practice of your life? Do you have a commitment to walk as Christ walked? A commitment. You're going to sin. Sorry. You're going to fall short. But God has made remedy. We need to confess our sins to each other and to the Lord in that ongoing basis that our relationship with Him would remain right. Our relationship. But the eternal connection between us is never broken for that is dependent upon Him and His his grace and not upon ourselves. I said turn to 1 John and I turned to John. I'm sorry about that. So I need another moment here. So 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And and there's that word that Jesus used. Sin is lawlessness. Right? So what is sin? Sin is... It's different than law-breaking, lawlessness. Sin is living a life as if I'm not accountable to anything or anyone. That's lawlessness. A life without any code of conduct. A life without any standard for what is right. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. Yes? You do know that, right? That Christ was manifested to take our sins away. And in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Now this becomes challenging ground for us. Because I love Jesus. And I know you're here today because you love Jesus. And you're here today because you know that God loves you. And I know that you love God. And I know that there's all sorts of things that you could be doing right now that might be more entertaining or more fun. But you've chosen to come here today because you love God and you want to hear something from Him, not me. You want to somehow connect with Him. You want to sing a song or hear a song or hear a prayer or hear something from His Word that builds your walk with Him. That's why you're... I know that. So I know you love God. And I know you believe. And many of you have been here for again and again and again and again, week after week, year after year after year. It's because you love God. I know that. Same's true for me. 30 years I've been in this church. Over 30 years? I came here in March of 1989. I've been in the church over 30 years. 17 as the pastor. Right? Somewhere inside there, I know I love God, and I know He loves me. And I read these words, and it says, He was manifested to take away our sins. In Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him or known Him. And I say to myself, man, I sin. I hate that I do. I understand, I think, what it means when the Bible says it's no longer I who sin, but sin in me. So what's the issue? Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Can I just say something about those words? Little children... 
Sometimes we read these verses and then as soon as we read them, we come up with long, arduously formed theological explanations for why they don't mean what they say. But if, 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 if that's necessary, why does he address them as little children? It's a simple statement. You wouldn't talk to a little child with words that they couldn't understand, right? You talk to, go up to any one of these little kids in the church, five years old and younger, and explain. You just instinctively talk differently. Like I wouldn't stand in front of a Sunday school class with four-year-olds and preach this sermon, right? If I did and you listen, you go, what is wrong with him, right? So John says, little children which isn't an insult to them, but it's a statement about what he's about to say. What he's about to say is plain and easy to understand on the surface. That's how you would talk to a child. Yes? Yes? Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. There's that word. The P word. What am I talking about? Practice. What do we say the practice was? The practice of something is the commitment to it. Of course we fall short. But that idea of, you know, just like a lawyer makes a mistake or a doctor makes a mistake, but there's still reputable people who, if they work hard, are credible in their practice, even if they make a mistake. Jesus spoke about practicing lawlessness. Here John speaks on the flip side, the positive side. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. He who is of the devil, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil is sinned from the beginning. Look at this. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy what? The works of the devil. That's the stuff that we do that falls into the category of lawlessness and unrighteousness. That's been true from the beginning of time. That's been true since the Garden of Eden. When Eve sinned, that was the work of the devil. You can see that when you read it, right? That was the work of the devil. You know, trying to get Jesus to turn the bread into stone, the stone into bread trying to get Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple because of the twisting of Scripture. That was the work of the devil. He was right there doing it. So with us, when we cast aside our desire to live as he lived in a moment of weakness. Listen, Jesus came to destroy that. In other words, what John is saying here is that Jesus came, yes, to take your sins away, that you might have eternal life, but he also came to destroy The works of the devil. uh, Peter said the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. John says Jesus came to destroy that. You ought to see in the life of a Christian the influence of their relationship with Jesus. Isn't that true? I didn't come to call the righteous, Jesus said. I came to call sinners, right? What's next? I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. John the Baptist, in speaking of repentance, says, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. 
And they asked him, what shall we do? He said, don't defraud anybody. Stop stealing from people. Soldiers, don't intimidate anybody. Tax collectors, don't take any more. Change. Change. And what do you think it is? What do you think it is? The gospel is an invitation to pray a prayer so you can go to heaven. And then you just live your life doing whatever you want. That's lawlessness. Or is the gospel an invitation to come to Christ and find forgiveness and redemption for your soul and an entirely new course of living while you're here? The practice of righteousness. It's not perfection, but it's a commitment It's a commitment to do what's right. I keep saying there were two elements to practice and then interrupting myself. The the practice involves the commitment and it involves, I've said it, just haven't hooked it up. It involves what I consider to be the normal course of your life. The normal course of the life of a Christian changes. Who was the fellow who wrote Amazing Grace? Newton? Not Isaac, but John, right? You know anything about him? What he was? You all all know his song, right? You know what he was? He was a slave trader. He was involved. He was involved with the kidnapping, basically, of Africans and taking them to other places chained below decks on ships to be forcibly submitted slavery. The gospel came to him. Do you think he went on doing that after he got saved? That's correct. He did not because he could not. That's why he said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? Wretch. Wretch like me. Right? There was a change. There was a change of the practice. Do you think he still sinned? He was a rough guy. We look at those words and they're so eloquent. You know, but we're talking about a seafaring slave trader. Rough character. Right? Listen to me. Of course he continued. That's why he found God's grace amazing because he continued to battle and struggle with things. But the course of his life changed. Because now he was committed to the righteousness of God, even though he still fell short of it. You follow? Even though he still fell short of it. But he called Jesus Lord. And he did not go preaching, casting out demons, and performing miracles and still chaining people below the decks of his ship. Right? What would you say? Get out of here with all of that stuff you say you're doing for God. You have human beings chained below the decks of your ship. Why do you call me Lord and don't do the things I say? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See? See? It's not... 
that Jesus saved us and just gave us a bunch of churchish, religious things to do. That's important. He gave us gifts to minister in the body. But Jesus saved us from our sins. He came not just to give us tickets to heaven, but to destroy the works of the devil in our practiced lives. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, that's, that's, that's the presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit. God himself is in us. And so I can't sin because he's been born of God. Now, wait a minute. <coughs> I didn't say wait a minute because I was going to sneeze. That was, just a, that, was just a, that was just an amazing coincidence. It was actually intended to be a, an oratory device, which I just destroyed by sneezing. But in any case, you read this. Um, he can't sin. Well, I... Well, I find myself quite capable of sinning. Again, the key is the word practice. Practice. Not that I'm not capable, but I just can't do it without the violation of my conscience. I can't do it. It says his seed is in me. There's a conflict. I can't just sin now without conflict. And let me tell you something. If you can, you need to examine yourself. If you're able to just, after calling Jesus Lord, without any conscience, without any violation of anything, without any uh, uh, sirens going off in your head, why am I, I can't do this. If if there's no conflict over sinning at all, then maybe ought to examine yourself a little bit. Because I'm telling you, little children, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And if you're still able to do the works of the devil, whatever they may be, without any conscience about it, or because you've theologically explained them away, wake up. Wake up. Read. Read. Believe. Do. Verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Simple statement. Children of God, children of the devil. Manifest means to show, to demonstrate, to prove. In this way, the children of God are shown and the children of the devil are shown. Whoever does not, there's that word again, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. You get it? That's it. The children of the devil do not practice righteousness. There is no commitment to doing what is right in the sight of God. The children of God do practice righteousness. They are committed to doing what is right 
in the sight of God. Yes, they stumble. Yes, they fall. But what does the Bible say about the righteous man who stumbles and falls? God will raise him up. Because he will humble himself. He will realize when shown the truth of God's word. He will realize when convicted by the presence of the Holy Spirit. His seed in me. Not permitting me. He will turn to God in humility. It may take time. In my life I have known for some people for this to take weeks, months, and even years for God, for whatever reason, to wake them up. You know, it really is something going through life. And When I was a new Christian, I used to hear preachers say things like, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be really shocked by some of the people who are there and by some of the people who aren't. And well, well what's funny is I used to dismiss that. Hey, come on. But, but now I, I actually think it's true. Because there are seasons in our lives where even the person committed to the practice of righteousness will slip and stumble and fall. Maybe just a moment. Maybe just an occasion. But deep inside their heart, his seed remains. And so that comfort, that peace, that lack of being checked in any way as you walk in wickedness, there's, there, it, it will not be permitted, will not be tolerated. He will be wooed back to God. Have have we established, with a few minutes left, have we established well enough that, I hope your answer is yes, because I'm out of material. No, that's not true. I have have lots more. But but have we we established well enough that the Christian life is a life that is committed to the practice of righteousness. It is not a life that is committed to righteousness in order to try to justify oneself before God. That is impossible. But once having been justified by faith, it is a life that is committed to doing what is right before God. Because let me tell you something. I'm going to read a few verses from Proverbs now, finally. If you're not committed to a Christian being a person who's committed to not walking in lawlessness but walking in righteousness, what do you do with these verses in Proverbs? You just dismiss them? What do you do? You you just write them off because they're part of the Old Testament or, or, or whatever? There's another really screwy thing that I've noticed over the years is how many people will make this dichotomy in the Bible between the Old Testament and New Testament as if... The Old Testament is a book that is strictly 100% completely a book that was for the Jews and people before Jesus came, and that's it. It's absurd. Jesus walked around quoting from the Old Testament. The writers of the New Testament frequently quote the prophets and the law and the Old Testament. I I mean, the early church, their Bible was the Old Testament. And when you come to the book of Proverbs... You're coming to a book of timeless, axiomatic, practical truth. There are something like six or seven hundred proverbial statements in the book of Proverbs. 
if you take the first nine chapters and all of the long statements, the long stories about like the young man who falls into sexual immorality, and that's like a whole chapter, right? So in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, the proverbial statements are longer, expanded things. But when you get to chapter 10, then boom, 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 boom. In those chapters, sometimes there's like 20 or 30 different little statements. There's something like 600-something, if you add them all up, statements of proverbial wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Did you know that something like one out of 10 of them deal, it's more like one out of nine, I think, if my math is right. One out of nine of them are encouragements to righteousness. It's, it's the dominant theme of the book. The book starts off by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. So faith in God, trusting in God, is, the, is where you start. And then the first thing it says is, remember the words of your father, your mother, like a crown on your head and chains around your neck. The first thing you're told is do what's right as taught to you by your parents, let alone God. It is a, Proverbs is a book of righteousness, practical righteousness. The practice of righteousness, the commitment to doing what's right. He's an old guy, Solomon, who wants his son to do what's right, and so he writes all these things down. I mean, you're a parent. Do you want your kids to do what's right? Is there anything wrong with that? You're here. You're a person. You're in Christ. You want to do what's right before the Lord, right? Two rhetorical questions. Should you desire to live right before God as a Christian? Good. Second question, is there effort involved? Yes. I have to say one more thing before I go to Proverbs. Remember. Remember. I think I've said this in a manner of speaking several times already, but I I don't want you to misunderstand me. Living right before God is not... You had no seed in you. You had not His presence in you before you came to Christ. And so for you to make a commitment to doing what's right, you might. I mean, I mean, the uh, book of Romans speaks of the Gentiles by nature doing those things which are in the law. You know people who don't know Christ who manage to do what's right here and there, right? Yep. But now you're in Christ, and so the ball game is an entirely different one. And when John was speaking here in verse 6 of the passage in 1 John that I just left, it said, whoever abides in him does not sin. And you see that word abide. Do you not immediately think of Jesus talking about being the vine? I I have a good vine illustration for you. You know that my house... We own, we own a house that's a couple of blocks away from here. And, and I've been spending a little more time at it in the last few months. And uh, 
there's actually an old grape arbor in the backyard. And it looks like it's falling apart. But it has like that old style charm, like something you'd buy in Hobby Lobby. You know what I mean? Like it looks old, but, but, but it's new. You know what I'm saying? So it's like it looks really cool. So, but, but when you look at the vine itself, it's like got some things tangled in it and, and it's got parts of it where there's dead branches. And, and so I always, I, as I go through there, I like pull things off that look like they're dead. And I always think about Jesus talking about the Father pruning it and branches that don't bear fruit, casting them off. But the thing is old and I haven't seen anything good come on. It just looks like something you'd buy at Hobby Lobby. So, 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 like, so like I leave it there, you know? So, so just a couple days ago, I go over and I'm mowing the lawn and, and I look and the sun hits it. It catches my eye. Big, beautiful purple grapes. It, it's amazing. It, it just amazed me that like this thing is still after all these years with virtually no care assigned to it, giving forth grapes. And so I picked this giant bowl of grapes and I brought them home and they're in my refrigerator. I don't have any idea what to do with them. Because they're not, they're not, they have, they have big seeds in them and they're not quite as like sweet candy like the grapes you buy in the grocery store, which are awesome. They're, they're more like grapes you would use to like make some jelly or wine or I don't know, some, something with, right? So I don't know. If you want some grapes, I got a big bowl. If you know what to do with them, you got, I got a big bowl. But, 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 but this vine, this vine is still, listen, 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 listen. This vine is still dug deep and healthy enough in the ground where in its season it brings forth its fruit. It has weeds around it. It has dead branches around it. You see? And when Jesus spoke of the, him being the vine, he wooed us to abide in him. Just like these branches that happen to have grapes on them, somehow, even though the rest of it looks like, looks like a Hobby Lobby ornament, somehow some of these branches are fastened to the vine properly so that they bring forth fruit. I was amazed by that. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The key to the practice of righteousness is abiding in Jesus. See? You don't attempt to do what's right to save yourself. You are saved by His grace through faith. And there begins a life of staying fastened to that vine. Pressed in to that vine. So that as season after season goes by, even though the weeds and the dead branches and the birds come and peck away at things and stuff that happens in nature that I can't describe real well, even though all that goes on, the season still comes and you still produce fruit. The practice of righteousness starts with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then a commitment to abide in Him. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Okay? Want to read a couple of verses in Proverbs or you just want to go home? 
Wow, really? You're all liars. You want to go home. No, I'm only kidding. I want to read a few verses in Proverbs. Here's a few verses in chapter 11. Go to Proverbs chapter 11. Let's learn what kinds of things Pop was saying to his son about righteousness. Chapter 11 and verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I don't know that that's intended to be a statement of theology. Though Though it is a good one in that it's the righteousness of Christ that delivers us from death, not our own. But I don't think that's the point of Proverbs. I think what he's talking about is he's trying to show his son that you should not just go through your life pursuing riches, which is what the world does. You should go through your life pursuing righteousness because riches won't keep you alive. Righteousness, generally speaking, will. Not talking about eternal life, talking about life here. If you live and walk a life that is lawful and righteous, generally speaking, you will avoid all kinds of trouble and at its most extreme, stay alive. You watch the news and you read the disturbing reports about this, this man, Jeffrey Epstein. You've seen that stuff in the news. He was a multi depending on who, what news reports you read, he was either a multi-multi-millionaire or a billionaire who had capacity to do whatever he wanted and that led him to do some things that were really bad. And I'll just leave that at that because I don't want to describe that stuff in church. My point, though, is that he pursued riches with his life and he's dead. Don't say that with any pride. Riches don't deliver in the day of wrath. Righteousness will deliver you from death. Commit to doing what's right and walk in it. Verse 10. Same chapter. Let's just start in verse 7 and so you can pick up a little context. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. Listen to this. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Right? Listen. Walking in righteousness is even a talisman against slander and gossip. Slug it out. It's uncomfortable and unpleasant. But in time, vindication will come. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there's jubilation. True or not true? What a simple observation from centuries ago that's still true today. When someone who is thought to be a righteous person has things go well for them, everybody's happy for them because they're righteous people. Because people have intrinsically in them that. To react that way. 
But when a wicked person dies, people are happy. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. So you have all these comparisons, and I won't go through each one, but the point that I had written years ago and and still wanted to make today was this. Reputations can't be bought or artificially created and maintained. There is that instinctive reaction among others when they perceive someone to be wicked and something goes bad for that wicked person, they're happy. You can't control or manipulate how people feel. You want to really, truly have a good reputation among people? And may I say to you, you should want that. I know we like to go through life and very cavalierly say, I don't care what people think. There are some applications to that axiom that might be proper. But for the most part, you should think about what people think because you bear the name of Christ. And how you act is a part of your testimony. And so to just go through life as a Christian and say, I don't care what people think. Jesus said, what? Um, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I, I think I'd rather do that. Right? You want to be of good reputation. You want to be of good testimony as a Christian. Commit Abide in the vine and commit yourself to righteousness. Here's another interesting statement about righteousness. I'm not just arbitrarily going chronologically, but I would have said this one later, but I want to make sure I don't run out of time and miss this one. Same chapter, look at verse 30. The very well-known statement. Chapter 11, verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, And he who wins souls is wise. Not not specifically speaking to the task of evangelism, but I think evangelism fits under the umbrella that this verse is. That's part of it. You understand? Right? The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. That is, wherever the righteous go, what do they spread? Life. By what they say, by what they do, The righteous are great life enhancers of everybody else around them because they walk in righteousness. And he who wins souls is wise. That is, the person who goes through life winning people, winning people to righteousness, winning people to God, winning people to Christ, that's wisdom. How do I live my life? You want to be wise? Here's wisdom. Use your life to win souls. Use your And I know, here we go, we have to think of a theological explanation to explain why this doesn't really what it means. We don't save anybody. God saves everybody. You know what? I'm tired of making caveats for everything the Bible plainly says. He who wins souls is wise. Deal with it. You understand? If you want to be wise, commit your life to winning souls. Right? Commit your life to living in righteousness, walking properly, being a good testimony, spreading the gospel of Christ, and winning souls to God. The New Living Translation of the Bible renders this verse like this. The godly are like trees that bear life-giving fruit, and those who save lives are wise. You see? You see? 
chapter 12, verse 3. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. What does this verse speak of? Stability. Another of the blessings, the practical blessings of walking in righteousness is a life that is well-rooted and stable. We speak of Christians being grounded and well-rooted. And we usually think there of doctrine and we think of theology and we think of the the doctrine of the gospel and salvation. That's all correct and true. But remember, you're left here by the Lord to live your life. And if you want to live a life that is well-grounded and rooted in firm soil, commit yourself to the practice of doing what is right. Right? And you will find what for your life? Stability, as opposed to what? The opposite. Un- instability. A man is not established by wickedness. We sometimes think we are. We think the security of our lives is dependent upon our abilities to scheme and to just do what we want and manipulate others. Man is not established by that. That may go on for a while, but the root of the righteous can't be moved. Planted. Commitment to righteousness can't be moved. A life of stability. There's more you could say about that. A lot more. Uh, here, I'm just going to blast through a couple of more and then we're going to sing a hymn and go home. I, like, I love this verse in the same chapter, verse 10. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. You're familiar with that verse, right? I'm sure that what's primarily intended is the agricultural use of animals and that, or perhaps the transportation use of animals, and that a righteous person doesn't just view an ox or a donkey or a horse as a thing that can be abused until it's dead, but that the righteous person actually regards the fact that this animal is a living creature that God has made. So what is one of the characteristics of the righteous? They have a respect for everything that God has made. Deeper than that. Deeper. Now you go deeper. You think about this. There is a reverent, respectful spirit in the righteous. They don't go through life as if everything they encounter, listen, 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 is theirs to be used. Whether in nature, among people, in relationships, with money and other wealth and material, with anything. I'm going deeper. I'm going to the principle behind this verse. The principle behind this verse is that the righteous person is a respectful, reverent person who even the horse that carries them into town Even the ox that pulls their plow is respected because it was made by God and has life in it. So there is a a respect for God's creation and not just a view that it is mine to be abused 
to get what I want out of it. Christians who are committed to righteousness are respectful, reverent people towards everything around them, even those things in nature. Same chapter, no, go to chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 25. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Proverbs are general statements of general truth. There are always exceptions to rules in the practical living of life. But generally speaking, what are we being told here? A life that is in all respects lived righteously will be one that does not suffer need. When we live right, when we're diligent, when we're modest, when we're good stewards, when we're honest, when we do everything right before God, generally speaking, my life will not suffer need. I will eat to the satisfying of my soul. But the wicked shall be in want. The person that does not commit himself to living right as he ought to is going to find himself struggling, struggling, struggling. I know that verses like this can be abused by prosperity gospel evangelists and things like that to say, see, send me money and God will take care of you. And of course, that's wrong. It has nothing to do with any of this. What this is talking about is what? You having a commitment to doing what's right. If you walk through life doing what's right, the course and the pattern of your life, generally speaking, is going to lead to you having, hey, listen, having a life that is satisfied. This is dad talking to his son. There's something very brutally honest about that. There's no nonsense with this. You know, there's no fooling around here. Solomon cares about his sons. And so he wants his son, what? To walk in righteousness so he can take care of himself. He doesn't want his sons walking in wickedness and then crawling back to live with them when they're in their 40s and 50s and everything else. He wants them to be able to live and be able to take care of themselves. So live and do what's right. Commit to that as a young man. And wherever you are in life, commit to doing what's right. Diligence, honesty, faithfulness. Commit to walking in the way that's right and you will eat to the satisfying of your stomach, of your soul. But the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Last one, chapter 15 and verse 9. I have lots more of these, of course, but... This will give us a little snapshot for today and hopefully make you committed. Chapter 15 and verse 9. I'll read verses 8 and 9. The sacrifice, or the worship really, of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Upright is an almost identical term to righteous. The way of the wicked, the way, the way, the way, the way, how he lives. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But he loves him who follows righteousness. Now look, again, we're separating out the preaching of the gospel to lost people. Because I know, I I, I actually believe if you walked into a room and said, God loves those who follow righteousness... You're quoting from Proverbs, but if a person didn't recognize that, they would immediately correct you and say, there is none righteous, no, not one. Right? And of course, that's not what the verse says. 
We know that there's none righteous. No, not one. That's why we need Jesus, right? Because he is, he is righteous and he saved us from our sins by offering that righteous life as a sacrifice and rising from the dead. But then there's this matter of how we live, which is what Solomon is talking about, right? What Solomon is talking about is what? Look at this. He, that's God, loves him who follows or practices or has that commitment to doing what's right. Right? God loves it. God loves it. Dad's telling his son, God loves it when a person follows righteousness. The wicked, God is offended even when they try to worship him. But God loves it when you live a life of righteousness. Okay, let's have Fanny and Jed come back up here and close us with our last hymn. I hope that you have heard clearly today these words and that I've tried to make it as clear as possible that we're certainly not trying to promote any sort of legalism wherein we think we need to earn our place with God. If you've believed the gospel, you have his seed in you and you are saved. And that's the end of the discussion. You're not called to live in righteousness to maintain your salvation or maintain your place. That's done. That's all his work. He will keep you to the end. Simple as that. However, we are here to live our lives. And I'm saying to you, you ought to commit your life to walking in righteousness. Abide in Him and find His strength to do it. Sorry.